G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. There is an invisible realm that greatly impacts the visible. Something unseen that greatly impacts what is seen. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining me for our next series of messages from Pastor Jeff. When we see evil in our world, or what we might call acts of madness, can we attribute them to Satan or demons? Sometimes it's just human nature. But in this new series, Deception, we're going to look at how the unseen spiritual world affects our seen one. First, we'll hear from Pastor Jeff about who the devil is. So let's get into the message now on Today with Jeff Vines. Have, uh, have you ever looked at something and you said, man, I mean, be on television, newspaper, whatever, but you looked at something and you said, man, that is just evil. I mean, that's just wrong. I mean, other than your mother-in-law. I mean, you just, you see something, you say, man, that is just wicked. That's evil. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about like, you know, the old alien movies, like with Sigourney Weaver, you know, where the alien comes down and looks for a host and wreaks havoc on everybody. Not that kind of thing. Or... Do you remember, if you're my age, John Carpenter's The Thing? I mean, the real thing, not the thing that just came out recently, the real thing. And uh, Kurt Russell, right? Young Kurt Russell. And you waited for this thing to pop out of their chest, and you're just waiting. Now, now I know this doesn't even scare you today, but back in the day, this was scary, man. When you're in the Antarctica, and just this thing pops out of Kurt Russell's chest, or actually, I don't think it ever did his, but his friends, and then it's there, and it's this alien thing, and you're thinking, well, that's scary, of course, today, that wouldn't even frighten most of you, the stuff you see, but not that kind of evil. Not the, you remember the Exorcist 1973 cult classic? I didn't even show any pictures because it's troublesome enough, but <laughs> the kind of evil I'm talking about that you see and you think, man, that's just not right. That is evil. Is when a man goes into a theater in Aurora, Colorado, having bought four guns and 6,000 rounds of ammunition, and he just starts firing. Doesn't have an intended target just to do as much damage as possible. Is there not a part of you, by the way, 12 dead in that, 38 injured, is there not a part of you that looks at that and says, man, that's just wicked. Is there not a part of you that when you see him in the courtroom, he just kind of looks like he's possessed by something outside of himself? Even if you're not a Christian and you don't go down that road, uh, isn't there something about you that says there's got to be some outside influence on this guy? Because the assumption is that rational people don't act this way, Right? I mean, is there not a part of you, even if you're not a Christian, not a believer, you don't go for the spiritual stuff, but you're here and you're on your journey and you're checking this out. Isn't there still a part of you that says, man, that, that's, just wrong. that's just wicked. I got one that I know will resonate with all of you. It's a group of men 
spend years planning to hijack two airplanes and fly them into business buildings in New York. And it's not like this is a moment of anger where you walk in on an adulterous affair and somebody goes ballistic. This is strategic. It's planned and thought about over years. And they're in a room thinking this is a good idea. And the question they're asking is, how can we maximize the death, pain, and suffering of men, women, and children? I mean, don't you just look at that and think, man, that's just evil. That's from someplace else. If you go to Auschwitz, a couple years ago, I went to Poland, and you go and you take one of those tours, you'll notice everybody's quiet. Everybody gets real quiet. Nobody says a word as they go into the, uh, the barracks there, disease and the death, and then over to the gas ovens. They'll take you and where they gassed all the little children that thought they were going to go in to take showers. And then they'll move you to the, the medical clinics uh, or to the uh, torture chambers. And again, it's not like this was one man losing his temper. This was sophisticated, well-designed, a killing machine <laughs> that somewhere, not too long ago, thousands and thousands of people said, hey, it's a good idea if we round up every Jewish man, woman, and child and exterminate them. That seems a good idea. Yeah, that's good. Let's do that. I mean, isn't there a part of you that thinks, that's just evil, I mean, Hitler himself said that he wanted to raise an entire generation of violence, imperious, relentless, and cruel. And he did. First time I went to Rwanda, I go every year to preach in the prisons. I'm not going this year, but first time I went, my translator, Anastas, said, Pastor Jeff, before you go into those prisons, you got to go to the genocide memorial. You got to know who it is you're dealing with in those prisons. And I went, and here's what gets you. You know, it's not only that there are little children, I mean, between, you know, three and seven lined up on the dirt streets. And there's a guy with a machete just going down and sly and killing them. It's not, that's, that's not enough. What really gets you is these are people who grew up together, next door neighbors, friends played on the same soccer team, went to church together. That's right. And then came home and had Sunday afternoon lunch together, went to the shops together, And then one day something clicked and somebody on the radio said, go kill the cockroaches. And the Hutus went across the street to their neighbors that they had spent all their lives growing up with and took a machete out of the shed and started to hack them and their children and their wives just like that. Over over a million people dead in 90 days. Bodies everywhere. There's something, that's just, that's just, that's evil. Even if you don't believe in God, you still, there's a party. Man, that's just not right. That's evil. That's from another place. That's, that's some outside influence. Because again, the assumption is that people who are rational wouldn't do stuff like that. So that something must have happened. The secular humanist really struggles with this. There was a book called Machete Season in which a New York journalist interviewed the 10 top instigators of the genocide in Rwanda looking for answers as to why. And he never found them, but he still wrote the book. The ringleader of the genocide made a comment in the book that just jumped out the page. He said, after the first kill, I noticed I got a thirst for blood. And then it was like someone else was wielding the machete, something outside of me, and delivering the death blows. What is that? (laughs) What is that? Now, let's move from the abstract to you and me for a second. Have you ever been faced with a decision that you know if you do it, you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else, and you still did it? I'm the only one? Hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, you're, you, know, you know it could change your whole future, change the direction of your life. You know you shouldn't do it. You know it's going to hurt you or it's going to hurt somebody else. But you still did it. In fact, you would, you would be angry, filled with rage if somebody else did it. You would preach to them how you shouldn't have done that, but you just did it. And here's the thing. Although the Bible says that you and I are responsible ultimately for the, our thoughts and our actions and our decisions, the Bible says that there's invisible world that greatly impacts the visible world. That there is something that is unseen that greatly impacts the seen. And if you go through your life not acknowledging that, you're going to lose. And you're going to find yourself doing things you never thought you could do. And they won't be good. Now, if you're in the room right now, I know what some of you are doing. You say, oh man, I was really starting to like this church. I mean, Pastor Jeff has a funny accent and you know, they're relevant, they're real, they're challenging. Here we go though. This is why I got out of church in the first place. It's a twilight zone. The invisible impacts the visible. The unseen and the seen. Ooh. Well, let me respond to that just a second. Some of you are saying, next thing Pastor Jeff's going to do is he's going to talk about the devil. I know he's going to do that sooner or later. Well, do you know who talked about the devil more than anybody else? Jesus. He had a full-on confrontation with him in Matthew chapter 4, a full-on conversation. Jesus talked about it more than anybody else. He referred to him as the strong man, the prince of the power of the air, the thief, and indirectly as the dragon and the beast. Jesus, an honest reading of the New Testament, definitely believed in a supernatural, personal force of tremendous evil and power. Who, according to one writer, would pick up the mountains and throw them at you if God would let him. The reason I say that is when we Christians start talking about the devil, we, got, we get ridiculed. Oh, come on, Pastor Jeff, I like you. At least I did. I mean, this is the 21st century. Come on, devil, demons, things like that. Come on. Even though we acknowledge today that most of what is known or most of reality is not seen. You think about quantum physics. Bill's almost entirely with the subatomic realm, which is almost entirely invisible. We can't really even conceptualize what a photon or a neutron or a quark might look like. We can only formulate their behavior with mathematical equations. Jesus comes along and he says what is true of the physical world is true of the spiritual world. That there is an invisible realm that greatly impacts the visible. Something unseen that greatly impacts what is seen. And it is after your marriage and your relationships, and your health, and your feelings, and emotions, and thoughts, everything. And here's the problem with denying the existence of the devil, folks. Here it is right now. That what you want to do is you want to take part of what Jesus says, and you want to say, that like that, and then the part that you don't like, you want to discard. And I simply want to tell you that Jesus never gives you that option. He says, you take it all or none. That not a jot nor a tittle, not the, the smallest part will pass away until it's fulfilled. All will be fulfilled. So some of you out there are thinking, you know what? I, I, I like what Jesus says about justice and loving your enemies and forgiveness and that God is love. And I like it when he talks about the good supernatural forces and the angels or maybe even heaven. I like that. But oh, this evil world of devil and demons and hell. No, no, no. That's, that's archaic, man. That's, that's just so yesterday. 
And Jesus says to you, you know what you do, by the way, when you do that? You become God. You become the God over the Bible. You become the authority that decides what's right and wrong. You don't submit to the authority of God's word. It, it, it really is somewhat humorous when I see so many people, especially right now, deciding what they think should be socially right and wrong. And they call themselves Christians. You're following Christ that you've created in your own image. The Christ of the Bible is the one who establishes law for you. And you either follow him or you don't. It's your choice. But you can't pick and choose what you like that he said and what you don't like and throw out what you don't like and keep what you did. C.S. Lewis said he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. He's either Lord of all the universe and everything he says is true or he's the biggest liar that ever walked the face of the earth or he's lunatic. You got to choose one of the three, but you can't have both. Now, C.S. Lewis says that there are two equal and opposite mistakes we make when it comes to the devil. I've written some notes down for you people who just got to have your notes. They're right there, but I want you to write these two words down that I didn't bit, that I put in your bulletin. The first word is this, two ways, superstition, which is overbelief, and substition, which is underbelief. Superstition, overbelief, substition, underbelief. Now, what is superstition? Superstition is when you think the devil is responsible for everything. I mean, he's in everything. I told you I had a brother that used to go out when he was between the age of 19 and 23. He would go out every morning and lay his hands on his car and cast the demons out because <laughs> it wouldn't start. <laughs> and finally, after about two years of this, I said, brother, this has nothing to do with demons. It's a Ford. It's, <laughs> and that's just the way that don't blame faulty ingenuity, human ingenuity on the devil. So some people think, man, it's like they have this unhealthy fear of the devil. He's in everything. Demons are everything. So they have a conversation or argument with their wife, and the husband says, it's obviously that you have a demon because you don't agree with me. Come here, let me cast that baby out. Don't try that at home. You'll get cast out. <laughs> or, you know, you've got a friend, and the friend's not agreeing with you on something. And there are some people who say, it's obvious, brother, that you have a demon. Uh, let's go. Let me cast those demons out. You see what I'm saying? Maybe your mother-in-law and... Okay, it's a bad example, but I think you get the point. Superstition, the devil's everywhere. And some people give him way too much credit. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. And you're not to fear him. Just have a respect and learn the way that he works so that you will win. The other is substition. It's underbelief. Now, that's what I think most of us do. In Africa, it's probably more leaning toward more superstition. Here, it's more substition. I'll show you a few photos. When we think of the devil, we think of a little guy like this, a pitchfork, or maybe this next creature. Now, this creature, stop right there. That, you could take him home. He's cuddly right there. <laughs> He's smiling. Just put him right beside the Smurf collection that you've had over years. I mean, there he is. Or this, now, sometimes we'll personalize evil, but still, I don't think that's very scary at all. Or here is the real picture of the devil. I'm telling you right here. <laughs> Cats are of the devil, as we all know. Now, the point I'm making here is that as long as you, as you look or belittle the image of the devil, as long as you look at him as some cartoon character, you're never going to have the healthy respect that you need to have and an understanding for what's going on in your life because everything that's happening, there are so many situations in your life that you think are neutral that there is a battle going on just behind the scenes. When you have that argument with your wife and you're tempted to leave, when you are tempted as a guy to look for another wife, when you're 
tempted to tell your 17-year-old that you never want to see her again. When things don't go well at your job after you make a commitment that you're going to work with character and integrity, you think it's all neutrality. And the Bible says there is an invisible world that impacts greatly the visible world. One of my favorite movies is, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Classic. George Clooney thinks he knows it all in the movie, and he plays the part so well. And two of his friends ask him, I wonder what the devil's like. What does he look like? I've always wondered. And George Clooney comes out with his answer. Well, there are all manner of lesser imps and demons, but the great Satan himself is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail and carries a pitchfork. And that's the way you and I look at the devil. Now, here's what I want to do. And for those of you who are new and think, man, we've not even the scripture yet. Oh, we're going there. But we have to set the stage, which is what we do in the first part of any series, this series called Deception. And we're going to do something we've not done in the life of this church since I've been here and look at the power of the evil one so that your eyes can be open. Jesus believed that there was an invisible realm that greatly impacted the visible world. And what I want to ask the question is, who's the devil and where did he come from? I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, who is the devil? Who is he or she or it? Now, I want you to notice there have been many movements to suggest that maybe God is a she, but I've never heard of a movement to suggest the devil is a she. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> who is he? Where did he come from? Now, I know I'm going to have to get into something. I don't have very much time. I've got to get really into the word here, and then we're going to have to move through it. We've got to do our work in the word because it doesn't really, at the end of the day, matter what I think. It matters what the Bible teaches. I know that you really like it better when I just tell a lot of stories, right? Yeah, you only wake up when I tell the stories. Then you go back to sleep, and then I'm another story, and you're up. So I want to tell you a funny story first and to get you to commit to stay with me for the next eight minutes when I go through the scripture. Will you do that? If I tell you the story, will you listen? You need you to listen. Here's the story. The devil showed up in a church, big, deep, dark, black cloud hanging over the church building. People recognized it was the devil and they just started scampering, just running out the doors and the windows. People terrified, running away, except for the preacher and this old farmer. And after everybody's out, the devil said, well, I know preacher why you're not running. You've been trying to tell people of my existence for years, but not so sure, farmer, why you're not running. He said, well, I'm sure surprised you don't recognize me. I've been married to your sister for 36 years. <laughs> okay, there's your funny story. Now listen, listen to me. Number one, yeah, some of the women aren't laughing very much right now. Number one, the devil came from heaven. In Job chapter 38, in Job's question to God, why is this happening? to express to Job that you're never going to have an intricate, exhaustive understanding of pain and suffering and evil. He says, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Were you there when I marked off the dimensions? Surely you know about the measuring line. Where were you when its footings were set? Who laid its cornerstone? And then he says in verse 7, while the morning stars sang together. Interesting. Morning stars can sing, but you didn't know that, did you? And all the angels shouted for joy. What is this? Why are stars given a personification? Because in the Old Testament, angels are referred to by three major terms. One, angels. Two, stars. And three, what is called the Ben Elohim, the sons of God. So in your Bible translation, when you read stars or angels or the Ben Elohim, the sons of God, all are representative of the same thing, the angels, the ministering servants of God. Now that's important because now we ask this. How many angels are there? There are billions billions. According to the Bible, at Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus could have called 12 legions. One legion is 6,000, 72,000 angels. 
One would have been enough because in the Old Testament, one angel took out 185,000 well-trained warriors. So there are at least 72,000. Is that it? No. Revelation chapter 5, we're talking about the praise around the throne of God. He says, I looked up and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creature and the elders. And then they cried out in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So 72,000, thousands times thousands or Hebrews chapter 12 says they're too numerous to count. How many are there? I don't know. But there are billions and billions. We know that. Maybe the angels are as numerous as the stars in the galaxy. Maybe there's a star per angel. I don't know. Maybe every person who's ever lived had an angel or has an angel. I don't know. I do know, according to Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, that the angels watch over our children. Plural. More than one. At one point in time, what the Bible does teach is that God created billions of angels at the spoken word, and he did so before he created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's what you do know about the angels. They're beautiful, they're powerful, but what you may not know is they have uniqueness. They have names, each one, and personalities, and ranks. So they're not all the same, flying around with little wings and playing the harp. You have Michael, the archangel, who's the super angel, according to the scripture. He's really fast. He's the general of the angelic army, a warrior. You have Gabriel, who's a talented angel, who leads God's army into battle and plays a little bit of trumpet. You have the cherubs. Now, the cherubs, these are not the cute little puffy cupids like we see on Valentine's Day. No, no, no. The cherubs are the most powerful angels around the throne of God. Strong, powerful, talented, beautiful. Now, why is that crucial? It's crucial because God gave something to the angels that he gives to us. He gave them free will. Why? God does not seem interested in giving or creating robots of any kind. When God creates, he creates for the purpose of love, worship, and fellowship. But love, worship, and fellowship cannot happen unless there's genuine free will. If you force somebody to love, worship, and fellowship, that's not real love, worship, and fellowship. How many times have you heard Pastor Jeff say, you can force a woman to do a lot of things, but you cannot force her to love you? Love must be given freely. When God created the angels, he created them for the purpose of love, worship, fellowship, and community, which means they have to have freedom to stay with God or to rebel against him. In order for worship to occur, you have to have the ability to feel and to use the mind and the will and the emotions. And the only way you can do that is if you have freedom. Thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. We'll leave Pastor Jeff's message there for today, but I hope you can join me next time for more about the invisible impacting the visible world in Who is the Devil? We'll continue it next time. So there was a rebellion in heaven by Lucifer, and he took a third of the angels with him, and they were cast out of heaven. In Isaiah chapter 14, we're told how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 